This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Three years ago, on Target USA, Dr. Christopher Paul, a social scientist at the Pardee Rand Graduate School, warned us that Russia was engaged in a chess match with the U.S. using its propaganda, disinformation, and he warned well ahead of anyone else to get ready for what was coming. Well, it's here. It happened in the 2020 election, and he's back now with an assessment of what he's seen. We're not as far down the rabbit hole as Russia and Russia's citizens are, but we are on the slippery slope and we are further further into a, a truth decay world than we want to be. There is definitely a, a crisis of credibility here in America uh, in terms of what people are willing to believe and what they aren't willing to believe. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Dr. Christopher Paul is a senior social scientist at the RAND Corporation and a professor at the Party RAND Graduate School. In 2017... He warned us about what was happening with Russian disinformation in the U.S., and he told us they were up to a very sinister game of chess with the U.S., essentially spewing disinformation our way and assuming we would swallow it hook, line, and sinker and waiting for the opportunity for the U.S. to make a mistake and they would pounce. Well, his warning came true. They did it again in 2018 and in 2020, and he joins us now to talk about what he's learned. Dr. Fall, let's go back to March 7th of 2017. You and I spoke for the first time, and we talked at that time about the chess players uh, that the Russians are and the Russian intelligence. And you said at that time they work generally dozens of moves ahead uh, and it's uh, it's a two-player game, and what they do is take advantage of mistakes by the other player. This is how chess works and how apparently Russian uh, intelligence works as well. But you also said in that interview, too, that um, there is something called truth decay. And one of the things that's really interesting about the time we're in now, we couldn't see it then as a general population, but boy, can we see it now. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'll follow up on both those points. And I, I still think that the chess player metaphor is apt for thinking about Russia and their strategic and operational decision-making. This is a nation of chess players. And in chess, you plan ahead, but you also have to be opportunistic. So you have the plan that you're unfolding. And I think Russia has that. But when they see a competitor make a misstep, they're happy to reach in and, and seize that opportunity. And 
I think they are perfectly happy to promote this phenomenon of truth decay. And my RAND colleagues, uh, Dr. Jennifer Cavanaugh and Dr. Michael Rich, have written a couple of reports on truth decay in American public discourse. And that, that goes quite well with Russia's war on information. They have kind of a, a nihilistic desire for there to be no credible sources of news. And I think this stems in part from Russia's domestic experience. Russia has been propagandizing its own people for so long the Russian people are very skeptical of any official news sources, of any official news sources, not just Russian official news sources, but anybody anywhere in the world. And Russia would love for the rest of the world to share in that inability to communicate credibly with a population. Well, then the question is, are we in that situation now in the U.S.? Because there are so many people that have bought into this idea that the election was rigged. There are many people that have bought into this idea that there is no such thing as COVID-19. People are dying in the hospitals, refusing to believe that COVID-19 exists. Is that where we are now? Have we fallen into that, in, into that location, in that place? We are not as far down the rabbit hole as Russia and Russia's citizens are, but we are on the slippery slope and we are further further into a, a truth decay world than we want to be. There is definitely a, a crisis of credibility here in America uh, in terms of what people are willing to believe and what they aren't willing to believe. How, how did we get there, though? Yeah. Uh, because a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, that arguably didn't exist. I mean, there, there was a threat of that. But now it seems like we're, how did we get to this point in such a short period of time? I, I think it's one of those things that rather than having an arithmetic accumulation where it just accumulates slowly, it has kind of a, a geometric progression where it accumulates quite rapidly. Or if you think of it as a downward slope, the slope gets steep all of a sudden. And I suspect, so one, this has happened before in American history, uh, during periods and the, the fact of the, the phrase yellow journalism and that kind of Spanish-American war period, uh, there have been other peaks and valleys in credibility of press and trust in institutions. And I think the current trough probably started and was a pretty mild slope, but got accelerated more recently, but, but probably started with the dawn of partisan cable network news. So during the golden age of journalism, back well before the turn of the century, back before cable news, there was, there was just the different major network news. And they all followed the fairness doctrine and tried to be either nonpartisan or equally balanced bipartisan. And then came the dawn of cable news and someone figured out, hey, on cable news, you have some different sets of rules. You can get your, your income and your financing from different ways. You can have partisan television news in addition to partisan press and partisan radio. And I think that wasn't a positive development, but by itself, it wasn't that bad. But what that led to is that bad. Well, where we are now is we have all that plus social media. And now we're getting into a new level of social media. 
we had Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, some of the old old school stuff, MySpace, etc. But now we have new places, uh, new social media sources like Parler, um, which has absolutely no rules. You know, when it's seemingly about when it comes to credibility, um, I can't say that for sure, but that's just me projecting what I think and what I've heard. But um, so now with all of these social media sources and new sources of information, what does that do to this picture? So it's concerning in a couple different directions, because uh, one of them is fractionalization of how people are getting their information. So there's already this proclivity for people to join partisan echo chambers, to have single or small number of sources of news where the kind of information they see is self-reinforcing, where they're only talking, where they're engaging on social media with people who think and feel the same way they do. So it's, you get this, this psychological confirmation bias that you say something that may or may not be true, but someone else agrees with it. So now you're, you're more certain in your own beliefs and they're more certain in their beliefs. And by breaking apart the social media space even more into smaller chunks, you increase the likelihood of that. So that's one part of it, this fractionalization. Another part of it is the, the extent to which some of these platforms are designed with this, this radical libertarian freedom of speech, freedom to say anything mindset. So whereas even though Facebook and Twitter may not have been as aggressive about policing mis- and disinformation and about enforcing their terms of service as some of us might have liked, they have done something in that space. And so if everyone is, that's on social media is involved in mainstream social media, then to the extent that mainstream social media platforms set some kinds of standards, set some kinds of norms, prevent certain kinds of things, certain kinds of obvious bad things like pornography, like uh, medical related disinformation, things that, that sensible people can agree need to be stopped. These radical freedom of speech platforms, starting with the 4chans and 8chans, who were the, the predecessors of things like Parler and some of these other new alternative social media platforms, uh, if, if it's the Wild West there, that, that may sound appealing to some, complete freedom of speech, but there are some downsides too. And what are they? Well, uh, the, the ability to say implausible and dangerous things and not have anyone disagree with it or stop it. Okay. And, and this is only so, so, and some of this is a, a philosophical problem, and some of this is a, a human psychology problem. And I'll make clear what I mean. So, on, on one hand, if you have uh, libertarian leanings, you take a position that says that people should be responsible for themselves. And so all information is, is good information and it, it's, it's free and fair to say whatever it is you want to say or believe. But couple that with the psychological reality that even though we don't think we are, we humans are vulnerable to manipulation. We humans are, are vulnerable to being misled and to coming, coming to believe things that simply aren't true. Taking a look at where we are now with our election, how do you think uh, 
Russian disinformation is playing into this, and, and I'll ask this question this way. I spoke with uh, director, former Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, who I spoke to right around the time I spoke to you in 2017. And uh, he said to me, Russia's not done yet. He said, uh, in fact, he said it a few days before the election. He said, uh, what we don't know is what worries me, uh, and that uh, he did not believe that Russia was done even on election day, regardless of what the outcome was. What's your view on that? And I have to agree with with Clapper on this. Uh, the only reason we saw what they did in 2016 and before is because of what in the intelligence community would be called sloppy tradecraft. They weren't very good at what they were doing. They were doing a lot of stuff, but it was kind of throw, throw it at the wall and see what sticks kind of stuff. Not a lot of careful covering of footsteps, uh, sloppy language, uh, easily traceable cyber diagnostics. So we caught them at it. Now they've done some other things, uh, some stuff that's been exposed, like I'm sure you're familiar with the, the peace data scandal where they set up this apparent progressive global news site that was in fact a Russian-sponsored disinformation site and recruited freelance journalists to lend credibility and legitimacy to the mis- and disinformation that they were pushing. But we caught that one. But what else are we doing that we didn't catch? I don't know. It's a very interesting question you mentioned. Uh, Director Clapper also said exactly what you said. And he said it this way. He said, um, the Russians went to school after the 2016 election uh, um, interference uh, situation was exposed by reading the Mueller report, volume one, which laid out in detail exactly what the intelligence community had learned about Russia had done. And then he said they went back and, and most likely started fixing and cleaning up their mistakes and, and, and figuring out how to not do that again. One of the things that's really pressing right now is our president who is pushing this idea that the election did not he that he won the election even though there's there's no evidence that he did he continues to do it and millions of people are supporting him and my question to you is how much of an impact is his actions are his actions having on this truth problem we're having in, in, as a nation and um, the, the national security impact of it? Yeah, it's, it's difficult to say because uh, doing good assessment requires firm baselines, but you can reach some conclusions. Clearly, it's not helping the problem. There is a problem and it's hard to say how much uh, partisan misinformation contributes to the problem or how much of it's just symptomatic of it. Uh, but it's it's not making it better. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Because it, it, it connects to the human psychology. Uh, a, a large swath of Republican voters have committed to President Trump and the Republican Party and some of the the worldview associated with that. And so when the president says something that is consistent with that worldview, whether or not it is true, it is accepted as true by those who hold that worldview. And their attitudes and their behavior 
is going to be consistent with the worldview that they're maintaining. So when, when a, a worldview like that has misinformation in it or disinformation in it, that can cause problems. One of the things that is perhaps more disturbing to folks here in Washington and, and to some people beyond here is the fact that there are people in the U.S. Senate who have been given classified briefings that have told them, for example, and this is a, this is this is just an example of of, of numerous things that. Russia did indeed try to interfere in the 2016 election, but instead those senators, as I'm not sure if you caught the hearings when Dr. Fiona Hill testified, she said, this is a fictional narrative. Russia did this meddling. It was not Ukraine as Russia tried to push to make the rest of the world think or believe it. These senators have had classified briefings that confirmed that, yet they continue to push this narrative that it was Ukraine that did it. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why these people would do that. So on one hand, that's, that's outside my area of expertise. So I don't know these senators personally, and I can't speculate on their motives. I can offer some possibilities. Uh, it could be the same kind of thing I was talking about earlier. Earlier, humans have a, a, a a preference for their worldview. And the way we, as humans, take on information, we, we are homo narratus. We are the story people. We carry our worldview around as a giant story. And when we receive a new factoid, and factoid is the word I'll use for something that is presented as true but may or may not be, when we get that new factoid and we accept it, we don't just put it in a filing cabinet. We build it into our worldview. So when you come along subsequently with a correction, a retraction, or an, uh, a, an alternative factoid, you're not just asking me to go to a filing cabinet and find that old factoid and tear it up. You're attacking my worldview. And it's possible to make an attack on my worldview and give me a replacement fact, but it's a lot harder work. So it's possible that these senators believed that it was Ukraine and not Russia, and that even when they saw evidence to the contrary, because of their pre-existing belief, they gave that evidence less credibility or credit than they should have, and they didn't end up changing their worldview. That's one possibility. It's also possible that they recognize the truth, but for political reasons, they prefer to advance a different narrative. Yeah, what you just said. That is extremely disturbing uh, to a lot of people. And... Um, I guess the last thing I would ask you is, um, wh where do we go? F f is it possible to fix this? I hope so. As an American, I hope so. Uh, and I, I think that it's got to be... So the good news is history, history says it's fixable. And when it's happened before, it has taken a while. But there, there have been cycles of decreasing news credibility and decreasing trust in institutions that have then rebounded towards increasing trust. Uh, it takes some time, and I haven't done a whole lot of detailed research on how those cycles ebb and flow, but, but there have been ebbs and flows before. So some of it is 
reinforcement of norms. Uh, some of it is commitments to truth and fact-based discourse in government, uh, in, in news programs, in, in social media. It would be great, you know, little things to see more effort taken in both print and in television journalism to make clear what is news and what is opinion. Uh, it would be great to have efforts by the mainstream social media platforms that have begun with efforts to counter COVID disinformation to spread to other kinds of potentially harmful and, and harmful in a broader sense, harmful in terms of undermining, in terms of promoting truth decay and undermining general credibility of news sources, uh, to have them work more to diminish harmful information, to uh, promote efforts to educate their user base, uh, to do things to help slow the spread of disinformation, even something as simple as having algorithms that pick up disinformation and when someone goes to share or retweet or like or comment on or otherwise perpetuate a piece of disinformation, to pop up a little dialogue on that person's browser that says, hey, our fact-checking sources suggest that this may not be true. Are you sure you want to share it? And if they want to, they could press yes and go right ahead and share it. So their, their freedom of speech is preserved, but there's just that one extra click required, that one extra moment where they might engage their higher order cognitive functions and go, oh, maybe this isn't true. Uh, so things like that. I think it's got to be an accumulation of little things. There's no one giant silver bullet policy or step that we could take or thing that's going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but part of the problem is recognizing there's a problem and then taking with as many actors, taking as many little steps as they can to help improve the situation. I see. You know, that's interesting. You mentioned that. And uh, I'll just uh, finish it off here with this. Um, you're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, Moore's Law, which talks about how computer platforms and all that stuff changed out. You know, back in the early days of Moore's Law, you know, what was it, every 18 months? But I think now, just based on the pace of change, it's a lot faster than that. And so, I guess, considering the fact that we're operating at a much faster pace than we were, say, a decade or certainly 20 years ago, that it might take slightly less time for us to, for the pendulum to swing back the other way, right? That That's certainly possible, and that would be nice, although... You're mentioning Moore's Law does raise another concerning specter in this misinformation and disinformation space, and that is non-human amplification and kind mm. of artificial participation. When right now there are bots, when people control robotic accounts that do retweeting or repeating or liking, uh, what about when the next level of automation is fed into those bots and they become better able to impersonate authentic users rather than just being echo machines. There's, if we don't get a handle on this, this mis and disinformation thing, that, that possible threat is another concerning issue in this space. So maybe, maybe when we talk again in two or three years, it'll, it'll be about how that has either 
become more of a problem or has perhaps contributed to solutions in some way. Well, Dr. Christopher Paul, thank you very much for your time. Your expertise is always welcome. And you certainly, as I mentioned before, have the right to brag right now, but you're not doing it. But thank you for the information that you've shared with us as we followed up on what you said several years ago, that truth decay was a problem. The U.S. needed to watch out for it. And here we are. So thank you. Oh, thank you, JJ. Uh, Happy to take the time. Pleasure speaking with you. Dr. Christopher Paul, senior social scientist at the RAND Corporation and professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. Coming up in our next episode, we're going to take a look at the impact of that disinformation in the U.S. We're going to present Democracy Under Duress, Russian Disinformation, Dirty Money, and Deceit. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's J Green, the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. Green at wtop.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at T-U-S-A podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha podcast, at T-U-S-A podcast. Also, you can sign up for my newsletter on national security. It comes out every Thursday. It's called Inside the Skiff. You can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, this is J.J. French. Through five decades in the music industry, having sold over 20 million records, performed over 9,000 shows, and receiving 37 gold and platinum albums as a musician, manager, and record producer. I'm also an author, motivational speaker, marathon runner, inducting to the Long Island Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, guitar collector, and a founding member of a little band you may have heard of called Twisted Sister. Now I'm ready to share the secrets of my survival in one of the most vicious and predatory businesses on earth, the music business. In my new podcast, The French Connection, the music business and beyond on podcast one get ready to hear real inside stories from me and my famous guests as they tell you how it's really done not just in the music industry either i guarantee that you will always learn something unexpected from successful survivors from many walks of life that's the beyond part that i'm so excited about don't miss the french connection the music business and beyond with me jj french tuesdays on podcast one spotify and apple podcasts Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.